I truly believe that Taylor Swift is uh, somewhat gifted and somewhat uh, weaponizing the greatest thing that she has in her life, which is she has a narrative. She truly mm. has a narrative which no other uh, pop stars on the same level necessarily have. Because as much as like you can have hit songs till the cows come home, but it's always those other things that wrap you in into those stories. Welcome to Long Live the Music, a podcast from It's All Dead, made by music fans for music fans. I'm Kyle Hawk. Welcome to Long Live the Music. Thank you for being with us today. I am excited, honored, thrilled. It's been a while since we've had uh, one of our favorite guests on the show, friend of the pod, Evan Soddy, uh, from so many places. You may know him. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know him from this podcast, but you also probably know him from uh, Pop Matters as well as, I mean, he... Evan is, you know the deal. I talk about it every time he comes on. He writes everywhere. He shows up everywhere. Now people are making YouTube videos about the articles he writes, which is mind-blowing. Evan, you're here again. You came back. I'm so grateful. Welcome. I really, it's it truly is an honor. I really, truly feel like uh, Zach Greinke. Uh, I just feel like I'm getting that special send-off. It's just, <laughs> it's really, it's really powerful. It's beautiful. As, as always, I'm always happy to be here and talk about the Kansas City Royals. You know, it's my favorite thing to do. Yeah, I'm excited too. I mean, I'm I'm always <laughs> proud of the research that you do prior to the show. Of course, of course noted not. sports fan, me. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to talk about with Grinky, but there's a there's a lot to talk about with a lot of things, and not least of which is like I alluded to, somebody on YouTube made a video of one of your Yardbarker articles or something. Like you, you've reached that level of stardom. Yeah, I was, it was, I did it because I, I did an article. It was a editor request of just like the 20 ways the Beatles changed the game and were the most influential and, and you know, innovators. And it was a fun research thing because it wasn't the usual kind of thing that I did. And then I found out some British YouTube guy made his own video expanding on every single aspect of it with uh, graphics and mispronunciations of my name. And it was, <laughs> you know, it was really beautiful to see. It really was. Uh, but it was just, you used that whole article as just kind of a jumping off point to explore a little bit further. But that was one of those rare times that uh, it Googling yourself has come up useful because I had no <laughs> idea it existed. No one had tagged me. Uh, but it was just like, oh, wow, this has already gotten a couple thousand views already. Well, that's cool. You know, like it's just one of those yeah. weird things that just pops up. What what for you in your actually very long and distinguished career of writing and uh, podcasting? Have you, was there ever been a time when your name has popped up in a truly unexpected manner or place? Well, I, I was just about to bring this up. I don't know. I mean, we've you and I have never really talked about the levels of narcissism that are required to, um, I mean, especially, <laughs> you know, we we grew up kind of in the internet age or the, the forming of that. And um, you, you can't really write things and just put things out into the world and then not kind of want to go and see what, what people say. But every once in a while, I'll uh, I'll do a Wikipedia scan just to see see where I've been sourced, and uh, there's some pretty good ones out there. Um, but if I'm remembering right, and Lord knows Wikipedia gets updated so often, there's a newfound glory. I think it's the newfound glory page where it says something about music journalist Kyle Hawk said. Da, 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 da. But I remember the first time I ever saw that back in like 2011, I was like, holy shit. I, somebody called me a music journalist. I can't believe it. Uh, <laughs> and then just like all found glory, you realize it was all downhill from you there. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> <one>. <laughs> no, that's, that's uh, I mean, yeah. 
oh like when we do it when we did podcast uh, research for the chartographer sometimes like taryn or the guest or whatever would find my name and like research of the stuff that we were doing uh which was always so, so funny uh to me too because generally we never control these things i don't know anyone who's ever gone out of their way to put their own name in there but for the most part it's just fans and people sourcing stuff which is always so wild and sometimes for the articles the most tossed off random lesser known thing you've ever imagined will be the thing that gets tossed in or just added to the whatever yeah it's fun uh one last quick note on that one of my favorite things during my time at pop matters was i mean you know you all just let me write about things that the audience of that website really just probably didn't want at all (laughs) and uh we've talked about that before but I used to do this insane piece at the end of the year of like the top 10 pop punk albums of the year. And Mm -hmm. as just point being, I would write that and there would be these bands, Red Sid Radio or Red City Radio, Spain from Oklahoma, um, got so mad that I put them on the (laughs) list of uh, best pop Pop punk punk. albums. Like I literally, it was, (laughs) they were on the list of being the best at something and they were furious and like their legion of fans on Facebook. This band isn't pop punk. And that was another really good one, but you know, you never know like what people are going to take offense to. So absolutely. Or when, like when I uh, did a list of like some of the worst singles of the year and I put Cher Lloyd with her song Swagger Jagger, which was a UK number one. And that (laughs) was not the fan base I was expecting to get death threats from, but Hey, who who knows? Sure. (laughs) I'm sure Cher Lloyd and her loyal fans are, are happy to support her as she finishes her shift at the Denny's. But, you know, it is, <laughs> it was not definitely not what I expected, but it was also, the block button's really fun, y'all. It's it's really great. But that's that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about that. No way. No sorry, Bob. Well, yeah, we're here to talk about a lot of good things. I Look, folks, we're going to talk about Taylor Swift here in a few minutes. So if that's not a thing of interest to you, I'm not sure why you're listening to this podcast. We talk about her a lot, but uh, if you're... You know, an, an NFL fan that just happened upon this podcast and you don't like Taylor Swift, here, here's your cue to go find something else to do. But uh, you and I had an interesting exchange. I mean, the, you know, the Taylor Swift conversation has been going on for the better part of this year. And a lot of angles of this conversation have been had. But as you and I were talking with each other, you said something specific that I'm so excited for us to get into um, that I feel like there's a really big and interesting conversation here. But before that, uh, I want to talk about, you know, here we are. I, if if you're not already starting to think about your end of the year lists, uh, it's time to hurry up. It's already October, believe it or not. And it's been kind of a crazy year for music. There's been a lot of really good stuff. Like, I can't believe, I mean, the year started off with a bang uh, for me with, you know, Paramore, um, Fallout Boy. But like, it's kind of been one thing after the other. Uh, Olivia Rodrigo most recently had a really great album i love guts uh, there's a chance that could end up as our album of the year we'll see how things play out but I, I think one of my personal favorites this year was gag order by kesha um and i talked about this on twitter at the time i know this is kind of a, a late topic to be discussing because the album came out a couple months ago but i was really interested to hear from you um this album not a lot of people bought it not a lot of people it, streamed I, it not a lot of people talked about it despite it being her most critically acclaimed album despite the big comeback that she had uh, several years ago in the wake of um, all of the allegations with Dr. Luke and the, you know, just the shitstorm that she's faced, you know, going through the music industry. And it seemed like she'd garnered so much support and was moving into this brilliant second act of her career. And this year she put out in gag order, what I am pretty confident is her best album to date. And it's kind of like, it almost didn't happen. And 
I kind of would just want to get some perspective. You know, you and I talked about it a little bit, but you know, what did you take away from this? One, did you even like the album? And two, were you surprised at all that the album just didn't really seem to resonate? It's also a really bold album from her. It's something that you felt like people would have, you know, raised an eyebrow to, um, but for whatever reason, it just, it just kind of fizzled. Well, I think the Kesha is a very unique artist in which the fact that she lives at an inflection point in pop culture, very specifically in her relationship with Dr. Luke. And it is defined her career to the degree where I sure I'm sure she's not happy about it whatsoever. She's on TikTok now. She seems to be at a much better place with her past hits, the ones that were co-written and produced by Dr. Luke. But the uh, allegations against him were severe. They've not been proven in court, and they put out a statement this year essentially quashing the issue, basically saying that they both need to move on. However, the damage is done. There's still people who refuse to work with him and other artists who were working with him in the post-Kesha era that are no longer doing so. But their affiliation with him has still affected how we feel about them. Very specifically, I'm thinking of Doja Cat and yep. Kim Petras. Uh, artists who are beloved, some uh, especially for some of the gay corners of the music writing and just the overall pop music world that I live in, uh, there are some people that see no sin, no problem whatsoever and just continue to support them unabashedly. But I know for a lot of people, their early work and their continuing work with Dr. Luke for their big hit eras has colored our perception of them or prevented us from even getting into them in the first place. I know like other YouTube critics like Tanda Shadows or whatnot say that, you know, as much as uh, Doja Cat is in some ways an acquired taste, still very unique, but still working within the confines of the industry, that constant, here's you got these Dr. Luke kits out the gate, is always going to just kind of hold you back towards appreciating whatever their artistry is. So Kesha has very much been had that narrative forced upon her and when we talk about yeah. narratives and we're going to be talking about taylor swift later rest assured there's a lot there's a lot to cover in that ground but as as with any pop star of note sometimes narratives are forced upon you sometimes you control those narratives as well madonna very famously someone who could control a narrative how she sees fit and also is yeah. very reactive to it with kesha the whole dr luke storyline was not something that she wanted but it happened and it's rough too because a lot of her career especially post-warrior has been essentially dissecting where that is when we think about rainbow which is truly and i mean this honestly one of the best pop albums of the past 20 years and i make no bones about that it is it is like close to flawless and also it's one of those things where i was going into it especially with that late single praying expecting it to be a very sad mopey introverted kind of record and it was uh -huh. actually the opposite of that yeah uh, that was a telling thing, but it was very upbeat and poppy and whatnot. Then she did The High Road, which had the misfortune of coming out right before the pandemic, but it was yep. a much more upbeat and brighter maybe to its maybe to its uh discredit it was a lot happier than it needed to be because maybe she had resolved all the issues with there but then clearly with an album called gag order that is still coming out on dr luke's kimosabe records it's that thing where there's a part of me that feels like it was almost a throwaway. And I don't mean that artistically because I truly feel like Kesha is pouring out her heart and soul in a way that she had not done. I mean, before, right. like I thought praying was like the epitome of what we were going to get emotionally. No, no, no. Gag order is truly just like an absolute visceral bloodletting set to yeah. minimal keyboards, basic beats, like not even remote 
remotely the club shit that she had done before. Not even a hint, not even a taste of woman, not even a taste of some of the other prior singles. It is this minimal, almost indie rock record that is fascinating and bloodletting. So critically loved, absolutely, but also critics love it. I think for the fandom of Kesha, there are some people that are just in it for the quick early 2010s sugar hits that she had, of which she had several. She mm -hmm. defined that era. But I also feel like there's a degree in which for a lot of those people, they're just, if they don't hear the hit, they're just not going to be on board. This album cratered at, like, I think it debuted at number 189 when even the High Road debuted in the Billboard Top 10, just yeah. showing kind of the vast disparity of where things were. But I feel like I, if I'm not, and I and I could be wrong with this, and I'm sure people will correct us in the comments, but I feel like this was the last contractually obligated album Kesha had to do for Kimasabe Records. So I think it was kind of, and this it was also, and correct me if I'm wrong on the timeline, released prior to the joint statement she released with Dr. Luke. So I tr yep. truly think it was kind of a final fuck you to him. Jay. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that that stands to reason. Um, so you you're I feel like you were kind of implying in there that because of the shift in tone and just the sonic nature of this album comparatively to her earlier work and even someone from her recent work, um, that played a role in the album not catching on in some way commercially. As, I mean, are you are you saying that is a part of the overall recipe here? I. I think so. There's been a history of artists who've who've uh, dropped records to get out of contracts. Uh, you know, very famously Prince when he did his album Come, which was basically a series of just like you know like strewn together from the vault kind of tracks that basically for him to try and get out of Warner Brothers. There's mm -hmm. been there's been times that this has happened. Neil Young very famously pissed off Geffen by putting out some of the most uncommercial records of his career. This is a thing that's happened, and some artists have taken to a point of doing it uh, with a smile on their face, sometimes just like selling out and just not even caring about the fan reaction. I truly feel like Kesha deliberately wanted, it's like, she's like, if we're going to go ahead and speak about some of the most traumatic shit I've been through, we're going to do it and we're going to screw over the guy who I'm can still in contractually obligated to do something for. Let me do it in a deliberately uncommercial way. Like it's that fine line because I feel like when very famously, when Neil Young did his Geffen record stint, I, if I, I believe the first album was uh, a, a rockabilly throwback record by Neil Young and the shocking pinks, which was not what the record label wanted from Neil Young. There were hit songs, not even hit songs, songs called kind of Fonda Wanda. Uh, came up there then like he just put out stuff that was truly just messy to the point where Geffen Records sued him to be like you are deliberately trying to sabotage your contract like I feel like Kesha was very much walking a fine line of like do I do something that is you know is something that is commercially acceptable even if it's not necessarily commercially appealing so she could just kind of skirt that line like I remember she shot a video for Only Love Can Save Us Now she you know there were vinyl copies available like you know it wasn't yeah. a you know it's something that was just tossed off, but I truly feel like if she had to do this to get out of the contract, she's going to do it on her terms. And that's exactly what I feel like it, which is where the power of the record comes from. But also yeah. she, she's not, she's, she's a very smart person. She mm -hmm. had to know that this was not going to be the thing that's going to light the charts on fire, you know? Yeah. Fair enough. Um, those are all really great points. I, I'm fascinated to see when it comes to the end of the year, where this album comes up, how it comes up. Um, you know, maybe I'm dreaming here and it, you know, won't really show up at all, but I, you know, given maybe you want to be reincarnated as a house cat, I don't know. <laughs> right. 
um <laughs> that was good um but no i um, <laughs> gag order reference for anyone who's heard the record yeah the if, if evan and i've listened to it nobody else has but if you yeah. if you want to get the joke uh give it a spin yeah you know look i, I was a huge fan of it i still i am um i've still got more mm-hmm left to say about it as, as the year will come to a close here, but um, certainly an interesting thing to follow. And I, you know, I, I don't think this is the last we're hearing from Kesha in any way, shape or form. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, where she goes next uh, sonically. Right. But well, I think uh, next she's going to be able to not be on Kimasabe. So therefore right. she is going to have much more of a say about what she wants to do artistically. Like may, it's entirely possible that she has been holding back on hits, you know, like potential hit songs mm. for herself and others. And now that she's going to be out of this contract, she will actually be able to unleash that and truly give the revenge is the best success or, you know, yeah, it would kind of fuck you uh, in in that end, too. So that's like what I'm thinking. So until she does that, she wanted to give give this dark brooding record. It seemed seems something that she needed to make. And the, and the fact that the collaborative statement of Dr. Luke came out now, she can just be rid of that. And we can focus on the more important stories like her very long history up that time that she had sex with a ghost. You know, like we could talk about <laughs> the actual things that truly. And it's like one of those things. It's silly, but like I would much rather read headlines about like the timeline of Kesha having sapphic relations with a ghost, which is a thing the other places are doing right now. I'd much rather read that than I would about any other goddamn Dr. Luke thing at this point. So I'm so those things I'm were with like, you there. I exactly. And so that's why I feel like this was not a commercial album, but I definitely feel like this was a necessary album, potentially even more necessary than any of us anticipated or uh, uh, even wanted. But like I I admire this record so much, but much like a super sad Sufjan Stevens record, like I definitely have to be in the mood to put it on. But yeah. uh, I have it is still just an absolute delight. And I hope something that I think over time will still get the recognition that it deserves, because I feel like as of right now, even with the critical accolades, it doesn't have that same cult hit vibe that it truly needs you know yeah that's right well from one end of the uh charts to the other we'll we'll transition to the our main point of conversation today uh taylor swift and we're you know speaking of you know shrewd business moves uh as a musical artist we're going to be talking a lot about that but i'm you know as i mentioned so many people have been having the taylor swift conversation this summer from every conceivable angle it seems like um Mm -hmm. and as we were talking about it you shared one of the most interesting takes uh that i'd seen and and you know maybe this isn't anything new but i just it really struck out to me i'll actually lead with i I pulled the quote from our facebook messenger chat so hopefully you don't mind me sharing it with the world but by all means uh (laughs) i was asking you about taylor swift's imperial period and this is a concept that you had shared with me one of the first times you came on the podcast several years ago um which defines this era in which the artist is at the peak of their creative powers and their overall um impression that they're having on the greater culture around them is that a fair enough way to describe it well, I, I think the definition I was borrowing, and it was borrowed it fully from Chris uh, Melanthi off of the uh, 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 Hit Parade podcast on Slate, uh, but the Imperial period being at a point where they are so popular and have so much public goodwill that they can release anything without issue. So yeah. it doesn't even have to be a good thing, but they can put out anything and it will be a success. Maybe it be just, I just 
pulling something out of my head, maybe like an ice spice collaboration, you know, like maybe you can make that just happen whether people ask for right. it or not, you know? Well, we talked a lot at the time about different Imperial periods that artists mm -hmm. have had. Taylor Swift seems to be in the midst of one that just doesn't seem like it's just escalating past mm -hmm. the point of what we felt like would be reason in this day and age. Um, and the, the quote that you had shared with me is, I truly believe writing great commercial legendary songs and being good at the music business are two deeply different skills. And not to be controversial here, but for all of her album and songwriting success, I think Taylor's arguably better at the latter. And so that's where I kind of want to focus the majority of this conversation. Um, but to start with, we're, we're going to get into kind of like the, the deeper thoughts around that. But in terms of the imperial period concept or just Taylor's fame in general, if we went back 10 years ago, let's say, so we're a year after the release of Red, which up to that point mm -hmm. had been another really big success for her it was her first point of kind of leaning into the the pop world it was it was kind of the first not to say that fearless and speak now didn't incorporate pop elements and weren't getting played mm -hmm. on pop radio but red started to blur the lines before she went all all in on 1989 but if we went back 10 years ago and i told you like hey evan how popular taylor is right now 10 years from now she's going to be so much more famous than this like she's going to be the the craze and madness around taylor swift as an individual and a musician is going to be so far beyond what you can comprehend right now what would have been your response to that is this something that you feel like was always destined to come or has taylor been so shrewd and so incredible at just the business of marketing herself and marketing her music and marketing the experience that we're just seeing something that we haven't seen in this way before. I truly believe that I, I thought that she had peaked after 1989. So nine years ago in the situation, yeah. but like when 1989 came out, she went full pop and it worked spectacularly. It was, you know, number one after number one. And again, Imperial period, bad blood was number one, uh, which yeah. is often regarded as maybe the worst song she's ever done. Uh, and like, the th but it didn't matter because she was just at that point where she could command commercial forces around her in such a way that her songwriting was still good. Because even like, even with Bad Blood being as terrible as it was, there were so many people that still could not get blank space out of their head. There were those who yeah. still were, you know, like massive fans of uh, Shake It Off. Like it was like, it just felt like songs that helped kind of define the decade in a sense and like she it was that thing where like okay well she's never going to get bigger than this but the thing about it though is that the reason why that felt like an imperial period is that the records after that were reputation and lover uh which which records that at the time and let's be fair with ourselves and i'm so sorry swifties over there records that have not lived up to the same reputation that uh, 1989 1989 sure. was there to swallow the world reputation and lover were kind of reactions to it and i think there's another quote uh, i go to, to Stephen thomas Irwin talking about eminem when he did after he did uh his debut and for the sophomore of the marshall mathers lp then he did encore and there was that quote about causing the uh commenting on the controversies that you caused is never as interesting interesting as causing the controversies which yeah. i think was reputation's largest flaw was that there are good songs nestled in there but because it was this like you know trying to rewrite the narratives trying to be uh, on top of the game trying to control where uh how she was viewed in that sense maybe a, a kind of overexerting herself in that sense 
I feel like there was this degree of like, you know, reputation and love are honestly kind of the opposite end of that spectrum, kind of like another like, you know, hard reboot that didn't necessarily need to happen. I feel like she was kind of lost that control and it very much kind of seemed like 1989 up. She's at the peak of her powers. That time's gone. That time's crested. But uh, not to quote a great philosopher or anything, but uh, she got smarter in the nick of time uh, and mm-hmm. was able to then rewrite her narrative yet again with folklore evermore. And of course, now we're on to Midnight's, which is just a whole different era there. So no, I would not have believed you at that time. I thought she was basically at the crest of her imperial era, not necessarily realizing or anticipating that this was the wave, one of the waves of her imperial ocean decade century. yeah. Well, okay, so here's what's interesting to me. Um, 1989, that tour in 2015, she came to Indianapolis. She played at Banker's Life Fieldhouse, which is a basketball stadium downtown in Indy. Um, And then three years after that, on the Reputation Tour, she played at uh, Lucas Oil Stadium, which is uh, where the Colts play here. It's a really big pro football stadium. Um, I attended that concert. I did not have, it was a sellout. It's the largest crowd that's ever attended an event at that stadium. Um, But I didn't have trouble getting tickets. It was a pretty normal ticket buying experience. And we went and we saw, and so this is, this is during reputation, an album that you mentioned uh, and along with lover as being not up to the the snuff of 1989 and not having like the kind of cultural pop impact of that album yet. There was still escalation there, but, but to put that in perspective, Next year, she's playing three nights in a row at Lucas Oil Stadium. Mm-hmm. So not just one concert. She's playing three concerts on three nights. I wasn't evil and able, and myself or anybody I know, wasn't even able to be selected from the pre-registration process to even have a chance to buy tickets for three shows at that stadium. That's like, insane. That blows my mind. That doesn't right. make sense to me. So let's say that I were to agree with you that like, okay, Reputation and Lover aren't at the top of my list when I rank Taylor Swift albums. I mean, Folklore Evermore and Midnight's albums I all like is, th- I mean, that can't be it. There's something else. There's something else at work with this, right? Like, right. I mean, so what is that thing that has pushed this to a level that is just almost incomprehensible of how difficult it is to even see her perform right i truly and this is this is the thing and we can base the entire rest of the podcast off of this i truly believe that taylor swift is uh somewhat gifted and somewhat uh weaponizing the greatest thing that she has in her life which is she has a narrative she truly Hmm. has a narrative which no other uh pop stars on the same level necessarily have because as much as like you can have hit songs till the cows come home but it's always those other things that wrap you into the stories i think in the one of the things that blew my mind about uh metallica as recently because we did an episode of the chartographers going through their discography me and taren were fairly neophytes into their discography but uh lars ulrich is a, a, a similarly a master at maintaining who they are because like if you listen to metallica like at a time they were at a commercial and uh critical peak but also like some of their more recent albums some of the stuff just hasn't hit on the same way there's a lot of fans that say oh they were good for the first four and they never did anything great after you know like there's there's always kind of those in 
fighting, especially within the metal genre, but they are by far and away the biggest act in the world. And part of it is because they preserve that narrative so closely. They have a, they have a fairly large payroll, but one of the people on their payroll is a guy who literally travels around the world and goes to all the different recording studios they have to look for like demos or like, you know, on the floor yeah. stuff, stuff that was cut kind of whatever, because when they eventually do a large 50 30th whatever anniversary box set of a record they want to be able to include all these things that help embellish the reputation that help embellish that narrative because yeah. by itself is Bon Iver, uh a taylor swift collaborator is Bon Iver a truly great legendary artist i think that's you know we can have that debate but truly when you think about the record that got him his fame uh, for emma forever ago what is what is your biggest takeaway is it the the sad songs or is there the narrative surrounding that record the mm. i was uh sad and went down to a cabin and recorded this on myself for two months and later polished it up in the studio uh you know post breakup from my band post breakup from my girlfriend like this truly isolatory experience that very much that context is what helps give that record that narrative that light which is record since then while uh, also acclaimed while also uh you know questionable while also sometimes just flat out confusing that narrative from that first record helped propel his career narratives are important and it's important to you because if you're uh if you're an artist that has a not great reputation if you're chris brown sure you can certainly have other critical successes but at the same time that narrative of public life of who you are as a person is going to also you know blackball you it's going to close off doors for you uh you know justin timberlake has had to wrestle with a lot of different narratives in his time as a similar pop star so taylor swift she has had i mean just if you think about her life too she was going from country to pop and then she had kanye stage crasher then she had like all these other things happen to the point now where uh i saw one reporter talking about i i we have run as a newspaper as a regular newspaper not even like a pop music fan beat teen zine magazine we've had to run at least one taylor swift story every single day for an entire year because yeah. it's what gives us the clicks it's that thing where <laughs> yeah. she is a celebrity she is like popular on there but she has a lot of narratives working in her favor katy perry b so whatever you want whatever you want to toss out there she's been through it and while she has not always been able to control all of them she has controlled most of them and she can weaponize them in such a way which is why when she goes on a tour when she goes on the eras tour in which she's going through all the different eras of her career and going through the hits like it is evocative of a memory because she's also been in the game long enough now that you are not only invoking nostalgia but you're also of trying to put your new material on that same pedestal as those nostalgic things and still getting a response the tour the fact that that tour has become as successful as it is if i'm not mistaken it's going to close at uh 1.4 billion in ticket sales uh yeah. is truly astonishing but it truly it is uh changing that narrative or at least for her in her case embracing that narrative and inviting everyone along with yeah. Well, so there's two things there. There's the concept of the eras tour and the different eras of Taylor Swift. And it's so neat and tidy the way that you can box it out. And people have like emotional responses to each of these points in time and touchstone moments that they have. And then the Taylor's versions thing, which like literally like I, I generally support the exercise of, of what she's doing and I totally get it. At the same time, like it's almost unbelievable how big of a deal it is for her to release albums of the exact songs we've already heard before. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's an right. event, right? But like I don't truly 
it, it, again, speaking about narratives, you want to talk about like if for she and she's aware of the fact that some people claim that she is the victim. But I remember when uh, when there was the purchase of all of the big machine catalog and all of a sudden all of her stuff was over with uh, Scooter Braun uh, yeah. and he's like, whatever, it's going to be fine. Like and she, you know, threatened to re-record all of her own material. A lot of people uh, were just like, oh, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I remember Justin Bieber putting out some really douchey statement on Instagram like Taylor, baby, what's wrong? Get on the Braun. <laughs> team it's gonna be great and and she just didn't have any of it he accidentally handed her one of the best gifts in the world because she yeah. truly in whether you liked her or didn't like her it was still clear she was being screwed over and she absolutely was able to go through a process that rendered that entire purchase null and void like that truly is like again whether you like her music or not not that is truly boss bitch behavior and it's yeah. that thing where like that's the kind of thing where because she's able to do it and then re-embellish what is already known about her, her career re rewriting and taking control of that narrative i think that's the kind of thing that endears her to fans and because we're I, like my god we're going to get a reputation re-release i have no idea how my brain <laughs> is going to even compute any of that but yeah. like it is the kind of thing where it's she is re-embracing that narrative and doing it in public scale if at this point she is fully aware that her life is public for all the people that were at the kansas city uh or at the chiefs games that were basically holding up signs like not a swifty or whatnot like here's the thing about homegirl she didn't tweet about it she didn't put a post on instagram about it she didn't do anything to mention that she was in the booth for these games it was all the cameras that found her and then right. all of a sudden there was all these articles about it like she's at that level of celebrity where she at this point doesn't even need social media she's good at it but she doesn't right. need it because much like beyonce people are going to be doing the work for her yes 100 percent. so one of the I, I think the moment that sticks out for me the most amidst all of this was uh with the 2021 re-release of red um which at that point everybody was kind of in agreement that all too well was probably you know the the best song that she's ever written but then by the re-release of it, the conversation around this song was even greater than it was the first time it came out. Again, I'm mm -hmm. not sure that we've seen something quite like that before. And it was such a telling moment that we'd entered into um, a kind of new territory, I feel like. And I, you know, I know I've been talking this up in that way. You can tell me if you feel like I'm, you know, I'm missing something. And I'm sure I have. Look, I wasn't there for Beatlemania. That, like there's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I'm living only in my my own experience here, Evan. But um one of the things I've seen come up a lot this year was the comparisons to Michael Jackson. You've, you've had people like trying to figure out like, what is the one-to-one? -one? What is the the closest thing that we can compare this to? Do you have anything in your mind that sticks out? Or, um, I mean, or, or do you feel like people are even the hyperbole around all of this has gotten too great? Or are we just in a, a new kind of territory? I mean, I, I'm truly, I truly am a person who believes that the, a pop star truly is their own thing like no one no one should ever be trying to be the next mj although goodness knows so many have tried i think a yeah. lot of people need to be focusing on the fact of you know they she wants to be the first taylor swift you know she wants you know like and i think that is uh, so much more of an admirable goal and aim on there because it's the kind of thing where especially for pop divas especially for female pop divas you're right there isn't necessarily a comparison on that level like there have been people who have had hits but not necessarily the kind of superstardom like this that just goes on for seemingly ever so like it is yeah. it is a rarely i mean truth be told i feel like her closest comparison is likely madonna which is i don't even think necessarily what she was aiming for probably even initially but like right. she absolutely is the kind of person that does 
you know, uh, you know, needs that, or at least is has that degree of control over their business, over their narrative, over what they are viewed at and seen as a pop uh, entity closest to like that truly is as this as uh as, as a distinct and unique uh thing i can think of just be again it's the thing where you know madonna she was able to uh, constantly pivot uh especially in her prime especially in the 80s 90s and even the 2000s too she was able to go from disco diva to putting out this you know the controversial sex book to realize that there are truly no bad headlines in this world because it still keeps you in that in that uh oxygen you know you're in the pop culture sphere in that sense uh that no one else could really occupy i and i think that it's the thing where truly again this goes to her talents that no one else can do what she's doing on this scale and i feel like it is it is truly superstar power to recognize that when she put out midnights and she put out there is a a, a frame that you can borrow you buy for like a hundred something dollars and in that frame there was a way to put four midnights vinyls that were you know all different variants but if you got all four of them you could form a giant clock per midnights like it was able to do that this is, this is k-pop insanity like this truly yeah. is like you so someone needs to buy four vinyls that have slight variations on it and that's to understand that you that is your market and to understand that you could sell that and people will buy it like that it, it, like madonna is the closest thing i compare to because yeah. she knows not only her artistic value and her uh celebrity perception but she also knows commercially what she can and cannot get away with reasonably which is by itself a superpower because goodness knows i've walked into uh record stores and seeing some uh recent Sufjan albums that were over over ordered by certain indie retailers <laughs> uh you know like as i said like you know she she understands the economics potentially better than anyone else well that brings us back to the original quote and essentially the argument that being really great at writing amazing songs is a skill and being really great at the music business is also a skill and those mm. skills aren't necessarily interchangeable so to have both of them and potentially even be better at the business side of it um, is a unique thing. That's why I think the Madonna comparison is really interesting because I, I think you're spot on with that. There's a similarity there um, just in the kind of understanding of the marketing of self and mm -hmm. the, the way that you take the experience of what it is to have somebody's music, but then that to turn that into something that is greater than just the, the music realm. Um, I mean, when do you think, I mean, was there a tipping point for this in, in your mind for when Taylor, like the, the, it clicked of what she could be music business wise that has taken us to, to where we are today? I mean, I, I, you, you are a far, far more of a Swifty. I feel like you would potentially be best qualified for this question. In my personal opinion, <laughs> uh, it is kind of, there's kind of a two prong thing, which is one, uh, the Taylor's versions controversy and the, uh, what happened with that, the fact that she was able to then pivot to get to, you know, rewrite the narrative, change her own, you know, change her own true right. narrative commercially and artistically was a big deal. But also genuinely, it was the release of Folklore as well, because she I think that the biggest thing about the release of Lover, especially falling reputation was like, I'm going to go ahead and put on a smiley face. I'm going to not be the snake anymore. And we're going to we're going to have some good time, feel good, make up with Katy Perry kind of songs uh, that are going to support all my gay friends. And it's going to be great. And that record, I, low key under 
performed. Uh, you know, as much as yeah. Keith Urban thought Lover was one of the best songs uh, that he had ever heard in his entire life <laughs> and covered it like the week it came out. Uh, it's that thing too where she was, you know, me was straight up fucking garbage, and I and I'm gonna just say Agreed. that to whoever. I this is one of the worst songs she ever did, worse than Bad Blood, I would argue. Uh, and then she then it just had a series of songs that should have been uh, hits, but were always always debuting or hovering at number two behind uh, uh, Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. Like she just, I could tell there was a sense that like a frustration. What she thought were going to be super easy wins were not those wins, and I think it was at that moment that she realized whatever narrative she had been pushing about herself as much as she'd been wrapping her own narrative up into her songs because people knew about what she was doing anyway why not make a pop hit out of it i feel like at that point she stopped took a breath and especially when the pandemic hit in turning around to folklore and most importantly turning around to the point where she began writing songs that were narratives that were fictional that were not about her I feel like that was the moment she unlocked who she needed to be as an artist. She needed to do, and to the point now where even goddamn Ed Sheeran is borrowing the Dressner brothers to try and do his own like sad boy acoustic <laughs> albums, and yeah. they are not working. People, people don't even have the the time to realize. Oh, Ed Sheeran put out new music this year. That's fucking weird. I haven't heard a goddamn thing because yeah. genuinely, it's like the thing where like he he is truly trying to replicate that success, and he just doesn't have that power of narrative behind him. When you think about Ed Sheeran, what do you know? He, I think he got married recently. He's a father now. Cool. That's that's a <laughs> lot of pop stars. And, and genuinely, like I truly, the, the biggest thing about him, the most unique thing about him, is the fact that he does his big stadium sellout tours, and it's just him and his acoustic guitar and his pedals. That's impressive. That's really cool. The fact that he still is doing that at this scale is a big deal. But that really is like the only thing about it. he does not have the benefit of narrative or controversies or all these other things that Taylor Swift has taken and benefited from. So sometimes whether it's a controversy, like even Doja Cat, she had the goddamn move video, uh, you know, to kind of like help launch her career and has been able mm -hmm. to try and pivot stuff out there. And she has shaved her head and has these really feisty interactions with her fans on there. Like whether you think about her music, that stuff is inherently going to be interesting. And like that stuff is the kind of thing that really pivots and adds to your legacy and creates that narrative beyond just you as a songwriter as a performer as a musician so that's why yeah. i think i think those two events the taylor's version specifically as well as the pivot to folklore i think those things really convince people that oh she's going to be around for for so much longer yeah i think you nailed it um you know i wasn't expecting ed sheeran to catch strays on this podcast but i, I do want to say i'm here for it um I, that was great <laughs> um <laughs> no i I, I think you're you're on the money there timeline wise. Um, I've got one other point to all of this that I'm going to make, but I have to, since you brought it up twice now, I am going to push back a little bit. Sure. I, here's look, here's a hot take, Evan. Bad blood is good. What what if bad blood is actually good? I've never understood. I, I I'll say this: the the re-released single with Kendrick Lamar, that's bad. That song is a bad song. But bad blood, the like the song that's on the album, is actually not. It's not bad. And um, I just, I don't know if I've ever said that publicly before, but I, I know the narrative around it, but I I think it's good. So, um. Kyle's version. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, that's great. I, I will remember 
I asked this. I asked this question to a coworker recently. I asked, "What was the worst show that you ever attended, or the worst concert you've ever seen?" Uh, and they didn't really have an answer. They were being so nice, uh, or maybe they just hadn't had the misfortune of seeing things. I thought about two things that came to mind. One, which was uh, Skylar Spence slash St. Pepsi, uh, he, amazing artist. Two times we've seen his opening act, Thirsty, who is just uh, not great at music. I would just say if music is what you would want to call what they did. Uh, but the other yeah. one was when I saw uh, interviewed and then saw a performance by Bastille at some weird influencer thing. And before Bestie went on stage, DJ Ruckus went on stage and I tried to do some max- mashups and mixes. And one of the things that I remember was so bad was trying to do uh, Wonderwall over uh, like uh, the, the, the vocals of Wonderwall over an Adele song. Uh, <laughs> instrumental uh, and the thing about that is that like in a concept maybe it could work but with the Gallagher brothers and Oasis there's something about their vocals when removed from their instrumentation which is so maybe yeah. you're gonna be the one to save me like these drawn out long flat notes and for uh-huh. me that's what bad blood gives me because maybe now we got bad blood and you used to have problem like it's just yeah. something about that kid that uh that uh key line that just bugs the crap and it's just like so that is i i i I truly think since the advent of me i truly don't believe that that is her worst song anymore uh you're not alone evan yeah yeah. i uh i just haven't had the bravery to speak up on behalf of bad blood and i appreciate you people should she people should lionize you for uh the bravery that you're (laughs) exhibiting today give me some credit absolutely Um, or you could be like one of those fans that uh when she performs marjorie at concerts uh people go in the audience for the eras tour and hold up photos of her grandmother uh which is truly truly one of those like you've reached a superstar moment when your fans would be like, oh, hold on, wait a second. I need to find my pop star's photo of my pop star's dead grandmother to bring to the concert. I need <laughs> to, I lot, need to man. do like, and I mean, tr- but truly it is like one of those things where like, if you look at it just from any other perspective, that is absurd. But in the context, in the universe that Taylor Swift is building for herself, that's a big deal. I'm more yeah. even fascinated now by the fact that she's putting out a concert tour version of the Eras tour in theaters, uh, and pre-sales have already grossed over a hundred million, which is wild to me because a the tour isn't done yet, which is a very very bold move. But b uh-huh. she already did this when it came to the Reputation tour. She put out a Netflix only uh, performance of like you know, like you know a video of everything that she had done at that point, basically a concert yeah. film. And it was weird because I, I'm not sure, I'm sure you, you know, you were to saw it, but like the thing that was striking is that I'd be very curious to see where, where that film, compare that film to this new Eras Tour one, because I during that show, I felt like she was very performative when she had her banter to the audience. Like she could put on a good show, but it was also very much, she, as a performer, she's grown a lot over the years. I still wouldn't necessarily go to the level of calling her, say, a dancer, but I would sure. say that it's, you know, she is very much, I think, grown more accustomed to what kind of star that she is. And I really feel like that is probably one of the biggest narrative things that she's had in her arsenal is that she's done the acoustic sit and strum kind of thing. She's done the pop spectacle. She's done everything with backup dancers and more. But I feel like she is, it, it, and especially with the Taylor's version stuff, become more and more accustomed to what she wants to do, which is why the Eras tour as, you know, technically innovative as, you know, she's jumping into the ocean underneath the thing, but it's just a crash pad kind of thing. Like the fact that she's able to do some of the things that she's doing, I feel like it is stuff that she has learned and is now applying and just kind of realizing that she doesn't need to be a Katy Perry. I borrowed Katy Perry's dancers because we need to have these dance moments. She is the kind of pop star she wants to be. And that is just Taylor Swift. 
Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about great artists is their ability to translate the art that they create into other mediums. We've talked Mm -hmm. about music videos on this show before, but uh, you know, her performances, I, I, I see it there as well. And, you know, when I went to the reputation tour in 2018, um, you know, I wasn't like when that album came out, I I was like, man, I love Taylor Swift. This album kind of sucks, but (laughs) at the reputation tour, seeing it live, I was like, Oh, Oh, I get it. Like it was one of those things where you saw it live, the pyrotechnics, the giant snake, the, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It was like, Oh, this is what it is. Like it's, the a complete other context but this album was created for this specific thing and mm-hmm. that specific thing was actually really great so um it's yeah fascinating stuff the, the last point i wanted to make here is that um you know and i've told this story before my, my first experience with taylor swift i was just out of college um i got in a job at a country music radio station so like 22 years old not a country music fan at all uh but it was a really big radio station they hired me to be on air so i took the job and tried to fake it as a uh somebody that you would want to hear talk about country music but her self-titled debut had come out at that time and she wasn't, you know, it, it, there was a little bit of buzz of like, Oh, this 16 year old and she's writing these songs, you know, Tim McGraw. Um, and I, I remember feeling like, Oh, this, this is interesting. You know, like I, a lot of the music that we played on the stage, was not something that was interesting to me at all, but I, her specifically, I remembered that. And as time went along, I kind of like, you know, shirked at the idea of Taylor Swift, you know, fearless and speak now came along. Um, but, but I wasn't the target audience then. Well, that mm. target audience that was really young back then now have buying power, not to mention mm. the fact that she's won over all of us, right? So she's spanned now across like multiple generations mm-hmm. that all have the ability that all have that that can lean into this as much as they want to. And I think that's another thing. It's not like, oh, just your teenager that is really into this band right now or whatever, and it's a big deal. It's like, no, Taylor Swift has captured literally almost everybody out there that would be a consumer for what it is that she's doing. Like even the few like parts of the Venn diagram that are untapped, she's now tapping into like showing up at the Kansas city chiefs games. Right. Like there, I don't know if we've seen somebody have a hold over that many different segments of the pop music audience as well. And that's a whole nother piece of this that kind of makes sense when you look at the timeline of it. It's like, oh yeah, this actually times out in such a way. And now you've got the people that were into her, they were younger and they have kids and those kids are into her. Um, it's another kind of unique thing I feel like about her specifically in this moment. Right. And, it, well, and again, I think it goes back to uh, understanding your audience and your narrative again, because when I think about like did everyone love madonna no my grandma hated madonna thought she was terrible i remember playing her when knowing that she hated madonna but we gave her like the headphones to my walkman and played her some of the last more acoustic-y songs off of her 2000 album music and she really liked it and when i told her it was madonna she got very upset oh. <laughs> uh that i was making her listening to this 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 trollop of a performer uh do these songs here but like it was the kind of thing where it was, I think, a lot of people's perception. Not, you know, Michael Jackson's reputation has obviously gone through a lot over the years, but especially at the peak, it didn't matter what cultural contingent you were, white, black, whatever. His songs were dynamic. His songs captured an audience and were able to be universally celebrated. It was that rare kind of pop that only a couple stars were able to achieve. For a second, it really seemed like The Weeknd was on the tipping point of that same thing, where yeah. even though he's putting out some batshit insane songs, truly a batshit artist that played the Super Bowl 
Bowl. Some of the yeah. songs he played during the Super Bowl are songs he played during the Super Bowl. And it's like, I can't believe we've come at this inflection point. But now he seems like he's kind of lost it. I think that, you know, the idol and everything else he's done since then, have he's kind of lost whatever that pop sheen that he is. It, I don't think he's gone forever, but it's that kind of thing where you see other people reaching out to others for their hit support now when it seemed like for a long time the weekend was a sure thing. Never been yeah. a problem for Taylor. And I feel like that, and I think honestly that's one of the things where the Ice Spice thing still feels weird because not her best song and honestly didn't need that remix. I know she's very excited by Ice Spice as an artist, but it's the thing where it just, it felt incongruous. It really felt like she, this is another moment where she had foisted her influence to be like, I'm going to make this a hit. It, you know, topped mm -hmm. out at number two. But it's the thing where I think a lot of Ice Spice fans, a lot of Taylor Swift fans were in conversation the week that came out being like, it's not the other one's fault that it's not great. It, it's just there. And I think we all shrugged and moved on from it. And the thing is that like at the same time for everything that you do as a pop star, Taylor Swift is always hyper aware of how she's being perceived. So I feel like in yes. that sense too, she is, she is aware of that kind of reaction too. And is also aware of the fact that it's still these people that are in their 30s listening to her. And it's also these tweens that are still a fan of it. And for her, she's going to be uh, their their idol. She's going to be a fan to all of them and whatever buying power that they have. Like, it's the, I, I think that her phrasing of the uh, Taylor's version announcements, and it's been for like the past two or three now, it's all it's never her project it's always our project it's always a thing where like uh -huh. i this has been the most one of the most artistically fulfilling things i've ever done in my life and i'm so excited to give this back to you like it's always right. we are in conversation with each other but that is truly and if you follow like you know any of the k-pop stuff going on it is in that same vein of just like the idols are there at service for their fans which is yep. why you know any 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 of the male idols can't have girlfriends because they're just eternally at the service of the fans you know like it's the thing where there is this weird dynamic of how idols are perceived and she is very careful about that which is also why as soon as i saw the travis kelchie's stuff come up a lot of people like get ready for your new taylor zaddy uh but that's only because they were so upset that she was dating 1970s wise matt healy it's whole <laughs> narrative but we are but again this is why the papers are hiring taylor swift the reporters on the taylor swift beat now because there's too much narrative to digest at one time yeah well, so let's wrap up wrap it up with this. How much longer do you think this can go? Uh, that's a completely unfair to ask a uh, question to ask anybody right now, but I'm asking you. And what is it going to take for an artist to step forward past Taylor as you know, kind of the central figure of the the pop music world? I mean, for a while, it kind of. I mean, I remember a couple years ago, it's like, oh, Olivia Rodrigo, here she comes. I, I think Olivia Rodrigo's great. She's not even anywhere close right now um you know right. and maybe she'll get there though there could be other artists that come along i mean i you know i'm, I'm reaching the point now where i'm probably going to age out of my ability to call that kind of a shot but yeah two questions how much longer do you think that she can carry on with this sort of level of intensity um of just rabid fan base and two what is it going to take for somebody to pass her in the pop music standings so to speak well, for for Taylor Swift, I, I I truly don't know if there's a limit. When you are this famous, and especially when you're making this much money, you're going to be around for a while. I know her big thing now is that she has since she's directed several of her most recent music videos, some of which I would uh, call okay. Uh, I feel like she is you know now pivoting to writing and directing films. I think she wants to push into that arena because it's also the thing especially after the era's tour especially if you've made one billion dollars touring uh and especially once you wrap up all of your uh you know taylor's version albums 
I, I don't know what other things you need to achieve with music. Like you can still always go back to it. That will be your strength and your power and you can make that happen. But for her, I, I feel like moving into other mediums, moving into film, moving into, I'm sure the Taylor Swift novel, I'm sure like, you know, other things like that seem more on her horizon. So as a yeah. pop pop star, I feel like there's definitely at least a couple more years in that engine. I think there that is uh, something that is just going to happen. I don't know. I, I truly don't think it's going to last forever. Madonna has lasted decades, but you know her last 15 years have not been the most commercially charitable or critically charitable to her. But she's still around. She's still a public figure and you know maybe always will be. So it's, it's hard to say. She was always going to be famous. I'm not doubting about that. She's always going to be some degree of popular. Whether or not her popularity has crested, I'm unsure, but also we've seen comebacks before. So yeah. I think think at, at least at minimum five years she's still going to be at the top of her game after that we will see but also i think that depends especially once taylor's version is wrapped up how much she's engaged in it too as yeah. for anyone who's usurping it i have a feeling the next pop star of that the, that will take up that much oxygen i feel like they probably haven't even debuted yet i feel like yeah i would almost argue for billy eilish because i think it's absolutely insane that in the uk Billie Eilish has two number one songs. One of them is No Time to Die, and the other one was What What Was I Made For from the Barbie soundtrack. Soundtrack yeah. cuts are the only things that have been number ones for Billie overseas. But Billie is also one of those people where, like, it's still an acquired taste, but also still has a, such a distinct and unique voice. It's always that thing where whenever an idol or whenever a new pop star comes out and they're just like, oh, this sounds like, you know, whoever. But then as soon as you start hearing the imitators, like that's that's when you know it's game over. For the yeah. fact that there are people that are charitably referred to as Olivia Rodrigo imitators, game over. It's Olivia Rodrigo's game. She is going to play it however long she feels like doing it. And, and it's weird how in that same sense, there's not really Taylor Swift imitators. Which I think is right. so strange, like right, like there's, I, I I can't honestly can't even charitably think of someone that's in there because there's you know your kind of country crossover, uh you know Kalisa Ballerini type people. There's there, I, and I know I butchered that name and I don't care. Uh, and it's like, <laughs> I feel like there's other, and I feel like there's you know other people operating in similar ish spaces, but never on that same vein because Taylor's found her lane and is always staying in it. So in terms of who's coming up. Like there are people that are stars. There are hits that have yet to be written, but I can't comfortably say what that star is going to be. I thought for, again, for the weekend was going to be her uh, potential male equivalent in terms of occupying that space. But I feel like he has spent more cap, more artistic capital than he cared to in uh, recent projects. And I feel like that's kind of hurt him. So who, who, who knows? I would be so curious to see who you got your money on. Yeah. I mean, Billie Eilish is obviously a, a really fascinating one. It's, even so far, and we're only kind of in the introductory phase of of the Billie Eilish experience, I would say um, it's there's been ups and downs, right? Um, mm -hmm. The the second album didn't really take over the world the way that uh, you know I think a lot of people were expecting it to. Um, I I still you know am a big believer in in what she's doing and uh, look for you know she's far from finished um i mentioned mm -hmm. olivia rodrigo the weekend was always just too subversive uh in my mm -hmm. mind to the the fact that he could be as popular as he was just like you talked about playing the super bowl um 
you know, singing songs about cocaine, like that in itself is like an achievement of like, I mean, how, how much bigger can you get doing the type of stuff that he was doing? It is right. interesting. You talked about Taylor, you know, potentially next acts and, you know, other realms, filmmaking and stuff. Uh, always, you know, I, I'm never going to count Taylor out of anything, but as we've seen with The Weeknd, for example, you know, there, there's always potential downsides to it as well. So um, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see. Um, and, you know, I'm certainly not trying to rush Taylor out the door, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a very huge fan of hers, and uh, it's been it's been exciting. I just wish I could go to one of her concerts again, but you know yeah. that's that's life, I guess. Um, but before let's we go, before yeah. we go, we're still going to put you to the ultimate test and do a flash ranking of her discography. Go. Yeah, <laughs> we did this a while back, and I feel like each time we do it, it changes a little bit for me. Well, but... and, and there, again, well, and also I think low key the Taylor's versions definitely I think have reframed some of those records in ways that it has. Uh, you know, yeah, not everyone was anticipating. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're really asking me, um, I think Man. I got to go red. Nineteen eighty nine, number one, number one, red number is, two. Yeah, okay. starting at the top. Okay, red ahead. at one, nineteen eighty nine, folklore. I actually like Lover a lot more than uh, I think some people do. I know there's some junk on it, but I think overall it, its highs are pretty mm -hmm. high. Paper um, then Midnight's, no, 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 no. Speak Now, Midnight's, Fearless, Evermore, Reputation, Taylor Swift. Wow. All right, good. We got yeah. it right here. But this is this is this is how it is for the moment. That could. Uh, That's that how could it is change. for the moment. It does change. It does right. change. So yeah. Um. Anything coming up uh, end of the year that you're looking forward to album release wise? God, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> it's, that, it's, that, it's that thing where, especially working in the space that, you know, you and I do as critics, we get a lot of stuff like in advance too. like uh, yeah. it's been it's been a very good year for uh, gay music overall. Uh, because like I've been, uh, you know, like there's the new Troy Sivan that's coming out. Mm -hmm. We had uh, the the Kylie Minogue that came out fairly recently, yep. like really good quality quality. Just just gives us some straight up jams kind of music. So I, I'm curious to hear the the Troy in full. Uh, yep. But overall, um, nothing else that's coming out that I just like. Oh my god, I I have to. I've heard a lot of good stuff already. I would say probably one of the most surprising comebacks this year for you indie rock heads is Local Natives. Uh, yeah. they I was surprised that their new album is like almost as good as their debut like it was it seemed like they were one and done kind of artists but no they uh, absolutely knocked knocked me out uh so yeah it's yeah. been it's been I'm I'm personally super curious to put together my own end of your list because I feel like I have so much stuff down and I have no idea what order it's going to rank out of like it's just oh yeah it's it's there's not a, there's not a super clear mega contender out here usually by this time of year I've already focused on or latched onto what my favorite album is but this year it's a little bit more kind of up in the air yeah I think I've got my eyes on the top album I need to start building the spreadsheets and mapping it all out um, surprised you didn't uh, mention Jason Aldean, Highway Desperado, November third. Um, oh no, sorry. Um, <laughs> yes, not 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 here in this. Try town, that in a small you. town, Evan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, what a weird way for me to end the conversation. Um, that's uh, <laughs> this has been a great this has been a great show, Evan. Thank you as always for coming on. I love hearing your perspectives on this stuff. I feel like you more than anybody that I know personally is able to take like kind of these big concepts and turn them into 
like just understandable trains of thought that makes sense of what we experience as music listeners. And so I just always appreciate uh, that you, you take the time to share that with us. So thank you. Well, of course. I mean, I'm just happy to be here on your last podcast before you take that USA Today position as the Taylor Swift <laughs> beat reporter, because I God, know it's only. going to happen. I Could you imagine all day, uh, every day? You'd be in it. I would. And be. you're in Kansas uh, City, so it all works out currently. <laughs> well, um, that's going to do it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to follow us on your social media platform of choice. Just search It's All Dead and come visit us at itsalldead.com. Uh, that's going to do it for today's show. And uh, I'm Kyle Hawk, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Long Live the Music. If you like our show, come find us on Twitter and Facebook at It's All Dead. And of course, come visit our website, itsalldead.com. <laughs>